Hey man, how's it going, y'all? Welcome to the show. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show, back again here. Well, you know, it's Monday morning. Uh, today on the show, Mike Swanson's going to be here to talk about the bursting of the bubble. Yet another one of those. Um, yeah. Bad news or good news, depending on just how you slice it. Mostly bad for everyone. But I don't know, man. We'll see what Mike thinks, and then we'll see how it goes. Mike Swanson, author of The War State, and uh, former hedge fund manager, now investment advice giver at WallStreetWindow.com. Mm-hmm. And also, Trevor Tim's going to be here. I think I mentioned this to you guys, this great article that he wrote about how uh, the kind of injustice, the kind of rigged trials and prosecutions that are depicted in the Netflix series Making a Murderer. Why, that's what goes on in all courtrooms all the time. And uh, Trevor Tim's got a great piece all about that. And then he also has this thing about the degree to which the government is conscripting Silicon Valley to oppress us all. And you know what? I apologize to you guys, man. I'm kind of behind the curve lately on, um, you know, I should have had Marcy on to talk about CISPA and all that, right? Didn't they pass a new CISPA? I'll ask uh, Trevor about that. I'm probably saying it wrong. They uh, they couldn't get it passed, so then they just attached it to an omnibus spending bill that everybody had to vote for in order to get their welfare for their county back home and whatever. So, you know how that goes. But anyway, so uh, Trevor Tim Beyond, try to get us caught up on uh, some of the high-tech tyranny stuff, the encryption and the Twitter and the this and that. Your ISP spying on you for them. Bastard. Um... Um, I know I'm mumbling like Fred Flintstone falling down the stairs over here. Well, sometimes I get emails that piss me off in the middle of the radio show. And so I mumble curse words. Hmm. All right. Uh, you know, I had a couple more invites out. I wanted to interview this guy, um, Cap'n Burger. He put together the movie, the internet's own boy. The Aaron Schwartz story. And today's the third anniversary of his death by suicide. Although you could call it at least, you know, a third of a murder since the government pretty much deliberately drove him to it. Horrible story. I really wanted the director of that movie to come on to talk about it. But you know what? If uh, you just search the Pirate Bay, I forget what's their suffix these days. Is it S-E? Yeah, it's SC. The Pirate Bay dot SE. You just type in uh Aaron Schwartz. No H, just S W A R T Z. And um it'll come right up. You want to get the one where the guy has a green skull and 
it has the most number of seeds and leeches on it, so you know that the file that you're getting has passed the market test there, and then you're fine. Get QBitTorrent for downloading stuff with, for downloading torrent files, and you can go get it. And in fact, actually, it's on YouTube. If you go to my Twitter feed right now, you can find there, I tweeted out this morning, on YouTube is the entire documentary of the Internet's own boy, the story of Aaron Schwartz or the Aaron Schwartz story, whatever. And, man, it's really good. I really hope you'll watch it. Maybe it sounds like old news to you if you haven't seen it yet and you think, ah, I don't know, put it off or not watch it or something. But, no, man, really watch it. Although I warn you, it's going to make you really angry, too. It's arbitrary and capricious, man. These prosecutions, the way the government targets people for destruction, they don't give a damn. To them, it's like washing dishes. They don't, hmm? means nothing. And, well, I'll go ahead and spoil it for you if you don't already know the story. The story is this brilliant genius kid who invented the RSS feed that brings you all your stories and all your podcasts and all this stuff who is a co-founder of Reddit, which is, you know, one of the most uh, influential websites in history and apparently will remain so, uh, you know, for a while, um, who was a, a great activist for freedom, for free speech and free expression and the decentralization of control of high computer technology into the hands of everyone so that everyone has access to everything so that everybody can be the best them that they can be, man. That's who he was. He was an enlightenment guy. He was a good kid. He never committed a crime against anyone. The accusation was that he, well, and I guess it's pretty clear that he did it. He hooked up a laptop to, I think it was Harvard's network. He went to MIT, but he went over to Harvard, hooked into their network, and used their passwords and such to, and then, you know, set a script to download everything on, somebody in the chat room yell at me if I get this wrong, uh, but I'm pretty sure it was the JSTOR uh, website where they collect uh, uh, academic journals. I can't even think of the term academic. This is what an idiot I am. Uh, they can they uh, collect academic journal articles there, but you gotta pay in order to get them. Well, Aaron Schwartz downloaded them all, perhaps on uh, plausibly on the theory on the idea that maybe he would put them all on the Pirate Bay or something where everybody could get them. And liberate all this information. The thing is, he never did do that. He had opportunity to, if I remember right, he pretty much got the files and had the opportunity to put them online, but he chickened out, I guess, and didn't do it anyway. But the government doesn't care. He's not a government employee, so he's hardly a human at all. And especially to the national government, they don't care. And every federal prosecutor is a would-be U.S. attorney. And every U.S. attorney is a possible governor or senator someday. And so everything that they do, well, just like any bureaucrat, but especially on that level, everything they do is about themselves and their politics. 
And I believe the name, the woman, no, I can't remember. Uh, what's the name of the U.S. attorney? I want to say Sanchez, but I'm not sure if that's right. There's this horrible U.S. attorney who clearly decided it had nothing to do with law, whatever the hell that is. It had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with she had power and she decided that she would use it to destroy this brilliant young man and use the money that she took right out of your paycheck to do it, by the way. To destroy a man who's dedicated his life to setting you free the best way he knows how. And so, yeah, they murdered him. He was facing 35 years in the federal penitentiary. You know, this harmless, gentle young kid. They're going to lock him up with Ramsey Youssef. And uh, so he hanged himself from the ceiling fan, or from the balcony. And so instead of having this brilliant genius continuing to contribute, first of all, to his own well-being, and second of all, to the rest of our society, he's dead. Not that that would ever diminish your love of the state, et cetera, et cetera. Liberals and conservatives out there, we know how you are. Don't you get sick of the Israel lobby trying to get us into more wars in the Middle East? Or always abusing Palestinians with your tax dollars? It once seemed like the lobby would always have full-spectrum dominance on the foreign policy discussion in D.C. But those days are over. The Council for the National Interest is the America lobby, standing up and pushing back against the Israel lobby's undue influence on Capitol Hill. Go show some support at councilforthenationalinterest.org. That's councilforthenationalinterest.org. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. All right, y'all, welcome back. What the? All right. Hey, it's my show, Scott Horton Show. Uh, eh, run-of-the-mill anti-government extremism, really. Nothing too special here, just... Um, man. So, uh, yeah, I guess I want to talk about the Tom Dispatch guy. I didn't hear back from him. I don't know if I will. So I just figured I want to talk about it anyway. Uh, so I cut this clip here. Uh, the guy's name is, oh crap, no, I don't even have it in front of me. What's his name? The guy's name is Rick Schenkman. He's the editor and founder of the History News Network. How do you like that? Huh. He's the author, most recently, of Political Animals, How Our Stone Age Brain Gets in the Way of Smart Politics. Now, I think he's a liberal or a progressive type, but the article is not the typical, oh, conservatism is a mental illness or disagreement with me is because you're unhinged from reality or whatever. Uh, this is much more specific. This is about killing people. And this is about uh, Ted Cruz talking about carpet bombing. 
civilians in the land that used to be Iraq before the United States of America completely destroyed it. And, uh, and the real point being about how Americans just don't care about our government's mass murder of people in other countries, and mostly just because of distance. I, of course, was reminded immediately of this great clip by George Carlin. Explosions are fun! And hey, the closer the explosion is to your house, the more fun it is! Did you ever notice that? Sometimes you have the TV on and you're working around the house. Some guy comes on television and says, 6,000 people were killed in an explosion today. You say, where, where? He says, in Pakistan. You say, oh, f- Pakistan. <laughs> Too far away to be any fun. But if he says it happened in your hometown, you'll say, whoa, hot shit. Come on, Dave, let's go look at the bodies. Let's go look at the bodies. Yes, and I'm aware of the cruel and bitter irony of censoring cuss words out of a George Carlin bit. You know, I don't know. Kill me. What? I shouldn't attempt. Um, but anyway, you get it. And he's completely right about that. And you know what's funny? I found out decades later, 20 years or something. That came out in 1991. Uh, I found out so many years later that that was a real thing. Thousands of people killed in an explosion in Pakistan at a Union Carbide plant. And then the chemical plume killed however many thousands more. And, of course, they were never held accountable at all. So they were hiding behind the skirts of the American Empire. And Carlin's right. Nobody cared. And why? Because Pakistan's too far away to be any fun. That's why. And that's why even now, among grown-ass adults, you know, into their 60s and 70s and such, the idea basically holds, especially when it's our government doing the killing, that whoever, whatever foreigners' lives are just completely forfeit when it comes to a decision made by our government to kill them. Their lives become less than human the moment they're killed. As a friend put it to me recently, look, if our government didn't have a good reason to do all these things they're doing, then why would they do them? It's got to be okay, because otherwise, what are you saying? I'm a good German living in Nazi Germany during the rise of the Reich? Well, that can't be, because... You know, think about how uncomfortable that might make me. So, you know, and that Obama, he seems like a basically good man. Or if you lean right, that George Bush, he seems like a basically good man. And so, you know, whatever, shrug. It's fine to kill people. And the further away they are, the easier it is. You know? Like it's a magical property of salt water. What's funny is, even if you've ever been to Mexico or anywhere, you think, oh, wow, so this is what it's like to be in a foreign country, huh? It's just another part of the earth. You could be in any place in America that has the same topography as wherever you're standing. And America, the middle part of North America, has any kind of topography you could possibly need to compare it to. Go anywhere in the world, and it's just like whichever part of whichever state you need. So that it fits. Isn't it nice? But it seems unreal. Wow, what a surprise. Go to a foreign land and it's just another land. 
with humans standing on top of it? I mean, what? But boy, when it comes to especially your government, I don't know. Government, I'm trying to think of good examples of American civilians, you know, being serial killers overseas on their own time, something like that. Certainly if you try to be a mercenary over there without a license from the state or State Department or DOD, you might get prosecuted, but I can't really think of like, uh, you know, American civilians even uh, being demonized for doing something really bad to people overseas. There must be some examples. But boy, you put on olive green. Forget about it. Americans just don't care. And in fact, I recognize too. I sound like some bleeding heart, hippie, feminine wimp. For saying, like, hey, it's wrong to explode people to death with cluster bombs. Think about if that was somebody that you cared about, who had their body ripped to shreds. Our government kills people in ways that if it was the bad guys doing it, you would be, well, very receptive to the propaganda about just how bad they are. Look at the way the Russians kill babies in Syria. Ripping their bodies to pieces with cluster bombs, which is a true fact, apparently. I don't know. Certainly, America uses cluster bombs all over the place. Uh, but to suggest that that's wrong means patchouli stinking hippie. Probably commie homo. Otherwise, what do you care if the U.S. government is carpet bombing people to death or not? And the thing is, is I can completely... I can completely and totally identify with this point of view because I was once 14 years old, like the entire population of the United States of America. And I thought, yeah, hey, if George H.W. Bush, who I hate, who has no legitimacy to me whatsoever, but whatever, if he wants to carpet bomb Iraq and then I'm going to get to see explosions on TV, good, period. Good. I am a boy, and I like watching explosions on TV. That's why Discovery Channel played weekday wings all about the no-fly zones for ten years straight. And I watched it. Neat jet fighters flying fast and doing spins and dropping high explosives. And look at the fancy new targeting system that the TV show is pretending works like they say it does. And it's cool. So that's what I identify as the mentality of virtually every American, as identified in this great piece, Running Today at Antiwar.com, how we learn to stop worrying about people and love the bombing. It's really good. I think you'll like it. This part of the Scott Horton Show is sponsored by Audible.com. And right now, if you go to audibletrial.com slash Scott Horton Show, you can get your first audio book for free. Of course, I'm recommending Michael Swanson's book, The War State. The Cold War Origins of the Military-Industrial Complex and the Power Elite. Maybe you've already bought the War State and Paperback, but you just can't find the time to read it. Well, now you can listen while you're out marching around. Get the free audio book of the War State by Michael Swanson, produced by Listen and Think Audio at audibletrial.com slash Show. Hey, Al Scott here. Ever wanted to help support the show and own silver at the same time? Well, a friend of mine, libertarian activist Arlo Pignati, has invented the alternative currency with the most promise of them all. QR Silver Commodity Discs, the first ever QR code one-ounce silver pieces. Just scan the back of one with your phone and get the instant spot price. They're perfect for saving or spending at the market. And anyone who donates $100 or more to the Scott Horton Show at scotthorton.org slash donate gets one. That's scotthorton.org slash donate. 
And if you'd like to learn and order more, send them a message at CommodityDiscs.com or check them out on Facebook at slash CommodityDiscs. And thanks. All right, y'all. Welcome back. Oh, what a mess in here. Get my headphones on for you. Hey, I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Join up the chat room, man. Um, ScottHorton.org slash chat. Got some people in there hanging out. Fake name in the capture, you're in. Plain old browser window there. ScottHorton.org slash chat. All right. Uh, first up today on the show is uh, Mike Swanson. And full disclosure of the conflict of interest here, as you all know, because you hear the ads all the time. Mike's a sponsor of the show. His great book, The War State, which is a really wonderful history of the rise of the new right military industrial complex after World War II in the uh, Truman, Eisenhower and Kennedy years. And I think you'll learn a lot and I really hope you'll get it and you can get it on audiobook, and it's really great. It's The War State by Michael Swanson. Uh, but of course, he also does investment advice he's a former very successful hedge fund manager and now he runs wall street window where he explains step by step everything that he's doing with his investments and his reasoning behind it all and hopes that you can benefit from it and you can go and sign up at wallstreetwindow.com so i mean all that being said i don't think this is really an infomercial it's actually really an interview because i have a bunch of questions and Mike Swanson, I think, has the answers, and that's the way I think of it anyway, but you all take it however you like. Mike, welcome to the show. I'm very happy to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to talk with you. All right. So um, there's this thing, I guess. I think it's right. Sounds right to me. Never heard it refuted in any way that uh, made any sense anyway. And Bob Higgs says so, and he's Bob Higgs. And that is, it's the Austrian school theory of the business cycle and I'll try to say it real fast and oversimplified, and you can correct me if I go off the story or anything, but this is basically the basis of our conversation today, is that when banks are allowed by the government to expand bank credit, that is, loan out new money by making the loan in the first place and expanding the amount of money in circulation, it ends up seeming to businessmen as though there are more resources in the economy to be invested in their projects than really exist. And then at some point, and maybe you can really get into the some point part of this, at some point the music has to stop and there are people left without chairs, right, in the musical chairs game. It turns out all those resources they thought existed didn't exist, and so you have whole segments of the economy uh, in error and then are driven into bankruptcy. And we see this time after time after time. We saw it with the housing. We saw it with the dot-coms before that. We saw it with the uh, after the first Gulf War, the bubble that they had drummed up for that that popped, I guess, in 1992. And then there was the 88 crash before that, and et cetera, et cetera. And they keep doing this. They generate the bubble, and then at some point, it all comes due. And so if I'm reading you right... You think more or less what I just said, only, you know, with detail and, and real substance. And you're saying that now is the beginning of the end, the beginning of the downside of the cycle. Yes, that qualifies a little bit of what you're saying. But I agree with everything you said uh, uh, because I, we're both kind of the same age. And I started investing in the stock market in the late 90s, and you obviously had this internet bubble when it crashed, and, and then the real estate bubble when it crashed, like you're saying. And 
as an explanation that Austrian economic theory uh, is the only theory that really explains what happened and why, and, and it's obvious that there was a misallocation of capital and uh, and, and obviously uh, bank lending problems, especially in the last bus. And this time, as we're speaking, I believe there is another bubble that's been generated uh, through the actions of the Federal Reserve once again. Now, I want to qualify a little bit because um, I'm, my, my interest in, you know, I'm not an economist, I'm more of a stock trader, and so Austrian economics was, for me, a, a, a good explanation of ice of the past. However, <clears throat> I'm trying to catch up and read uh, some of the original Austrian economics books. And if you look at what they're saying about the causes of the Great Depression, uh, you know, a lot of the argument was that the Fed uh, artificially manipulated prices and kept them too high, and that also caused people to make uh, mistakes in capital investment, that they produced too many goods and, and caused a... Uh, a huge problem when prices eventually drop. So, but the bottom line is, I mean, the simplest way to reduce the theory is that when the Fed, Federal Reserve, or the government, or whoever, manipulates prices and makes artificial uh, price levels, that causes uh, vast problems in the way capital is invested and makes people to cause them to make mistakes that end up biting them. And, and if it goes long enough, it creates a bubble and then it bites uh, lots of people. So just that basic premise, I think, is, is uh, you know, what what's happened <laughs> over and over again, and I think it's happening now. Uh, the thing about this time, though, is that you know, we saw the stock market go up uh, tremendously from 2009 to really last July is when it topped out. And people know the Federal Reserve was doing something to help the stock market. Uh, you know, they obviously made interest rates at zero, uh, and they did this quantitative easing bond buying program. Uh, but the people that I talk to or read that are bullish on the stock market or have been, uh, they just kind of think, well, the Fed won, and the Fed makes it go up, and the Fed's doing something without any real deep understanding of, of what it is they've done. And even... I, I haven't really understood what they were doing uh, until really a couple months ago. I, I, in my mind, I knew there was a bond bubble, so to speak. Um, obviously, everyone knows the national debt is, is growing, and it, it, you know, the, the Congress has reports. Uh, the budget office, the Congressional Budget Office, claims that by 2030 or around 2030, if the budget deficit isn't lowered, then there's going to be a disaster. And so that's kind of the, the bubble that everyone knows. But I think there's a different bubble that is what actually made the stock market go up, and that's a bubble in, in the debt that corporations themselves have been taking on. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the thing is um, a lot of the Austrian economists, after the last bust and the invention of the 0% interest rate and all the quantitative easing were saying, well, man, we're going to have massive inflation here, even with all the deflationary pressures and all the bad debts being canceled. Still, you're creating so much money. And yet 
the and there has been price inflation in you know ask anyone who has to go to the grocery store and to feed anybody else and they can tell you but it hasn't been uh anything like the worst predictions and then so the question is where did all that money go it's just sitting in bank vaults and sitting at the fed but you're saying well yeah but also a big part of it just was reinvested back into the market itself yeah that, that, that's the big thing that i don't think that i didn't really understand and i don't think most people really know happened and that is yes the, the fed lowered rates to zero and then uh, three times they created a bond buying program they called a quantitative easing and what they did is they bought mortgage securities that were underwater and then they bought treasury bonds from the federal government now what this did was it made interest rates uh, stay low and remain so low that most people, you know, their, their CDs come due and they can't make any more money on them and they don't know what to do. So they would venture into the stock market. That's just the, the regular in the person. But the key is that our, with interest rates at zero, I mean, you can't really uh, make money lending people money anymore. It benefits borrowers uh, to, to to borrow more money because it's cheap. So they went on an orgy of borrowing money, the corporations did, by issuing corporate bonds. Um, now, what's interesting is... Now, wait, hold, did, it to the, hold it to the interesting on the other side okay. of the break here. The bubble in corporate bonds right after this, y'all. Hey, all Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MasterSamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. All right, you guys. Welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. I'm talking with Mike Swanson about, don't call it the business cycle. It's the government-generated boom-bust cycle. And uh, we're talking about how so much of the new money that the government has created since the last crash has, um, it hasn't been loaned out to any and everybody, but it has been loaned out to big business to invest in the self-fulfilling stock market bubble, which uh, Mike Swanson is saying, one, is it's the beginning of the bear now, and then you're going to say something else was interesting before that, though, at the break there. Mike, go ahead. Oh, I, I, probably maybe the best thing I can do is give a concrete example of, what, of what's going on. Um, what happened was a lot of companies, obviously the economy was poor and bad, but companies had the ability to borrow money cheaply by issuing debt, uh, which are bonds, uh, but they had nowhere, you know, really to, a lot of times nowhere to really invest the money that would create uh, jobs or expand their revenue stream. So they essentially just 
use the money to buy back their own stock, which would make their stock go up, their shareholders happy and the CEOs and board of directors more rich, essentially. Um, now, to give you an example of this, uh, Sirius Radio, um, <laughs> last, uh, last year, they had a net income of $493 million, and they bought back $2.5 billion worth of stock. So they bought back five times, they spent five times as much money on buying stock out of the stock market as they actually made in net income. Well, how did they finance that? Uh, they issued bonds, and they've got uh, $4.4 billion in debt uh, as of the last statement I'm looking at. And back in 2012, they had uh, just about half that much debt. Now, that's just one example. You can multiply that probably by about a 1,000 companies, and that's essentially why the stock market went up. And I'm looking, as we're speaking, at some figures put out by Morgan Stanley of telling you what are the money flow data, how much money is coming in out of the stock market year by year. And last year, two, uh, they claim that $205 billion came out of the market from regular people, small investors, households, uh, and corporations bought $542 billion worth of stock. So they bridged, you know, they were, they were the bulk of the buying that went into the stock market and kept it really from dropping. Now, they're predicting that this year the corporations are going to buy $450 billion more stock by going deeper into debt. Uh, now, my assertion is this is unsustainable and uh, it will suddenly come to an end, these buybacks, because when the stock market's declining or even if the economy just slows down a little bit, most of the people running these companies are not going to want to keep doing this. And also, the rate of interest uh, in the bond market is, is, is already rising, meaning the investors are seeing these corporate bonds as being more risky than they did just six months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what we've seen in the oil stocks is kind of like <laughs> an example. Uh, you, you, this whole fracking drilling industry also was financed the same way, and it all kind of blew up. Uh, or started in 2014, and those stocks have all crashed, and you know all these subpar companies were put in operation. That and now that oil prices are lower, they can't you know finance these. And, you know, some of them are just going to go bankrupt. So that's kind of I'm not saying corporate America is all going to go bankrupt or something, but uh, what I am saying is this issuing debt just to buy stocks is probably going to end very suddenly. And if you look at 2007 and 2008. That's basically what happened then, too. They they were doing these buybacks in 2007, and then just overnight just basically stopped doing it. So I think that's actually the cause of the stock market starting to drop as as we're talking. And now, do you think the distortion in the economy is today as bad as it was back in 2007 during the entire mortgage bubble and all that? That's the good good question. On one hand, no. because I don't, I don't think uh, banks are going to go bankrupt or anything like that. Uh, or, or put, it, put it to you another way, uh, in 2008, those mortgage securities were worthless. Those subprime mortgages were worth nothing. And now, uh, yeah, once 
thing that's funny about this is a lot of corporations are buying the bonds from each other because they can't make any money, you know, in many market funds. But bonds aren't going to, like, these bonds aren't going to go to zero or something. Like Apple bonds, and Apple's been a company doing this too, just about all the big companies that have been doing this. These bonds aren't going to go to zero in value or something. So it's not like subprime and in that sense. But I don't know. I, I don't know. Uh, really, I mean, if, if just the stock market declining could affect the economy at some point. Uh, I don't think it will this year. Because uh, if you look at 2000 to 2003, there's a terrible bear market then, and it didn't really hurt most of the country as far as the economy went. But so, and the last one did, but that's more because of what happened with the banks and real estate. Mm. So I, I, I don't think it's like it was last time. If it is, then that would be something down the road that would be bigger problems as a result of all this. And I, I don't, I really had no idea. I mean, it's kind of like looking at a black hole, to tell you the truth. So in other words, <laughs> if it's if it's anything like as bad, then right now it 2008 right now is just 2007 and the beginning of the bad times and but if there's going to be a worse and complete collapse that would be coming down the road you're saying and, but that's always interesting yeah. to me because i remember starting in 2007 um and you know as an economist i'm a great anti-war guy you know i don't know but i remember gary north and the guys at uh, lourockwell.com saying haha look at the fall of bear stearns and whatever back in 07 and i remember in fact gary north specifically in the summer, you know, like in August of 08, saying the big one is coming, everybody out. And, you know, it came the next month. So, um, but it took a good year and a half from the start of the fall to the real implosion, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, th- this time, it's, it's a little, this is, I mean, this is the way I feel about it. Like, it's a, I think the stock market can fall really bad. Uh, but differently, like in 2008, it just crashed in October. Uh, this time, I think it's actually likely just to fall slowly and go on a long time. This is actually what the oil stocks have done and many other bear markets have recently taken place. So it's probably going to just go on for a while. But Well, what's somebody to do then if they can't get... You know, they put their money in a savings account. They're losing out to inflation. They put their money in any stock market type investments. They're going to lose out to God knows what sort of fraud and and rigged market. So what's somebody to do, especially when somebody doesn't have the real expertise to type in the right algorithm to try to beat Goldman or whatever, you know, on these things? It's hard. Well, I, I think the easiest thing someone can do is just have a little sell some to have some cash. And then put some money into gold uh, because one thing, gold's been in a long bear market, and I think it's going to benefit from this because one thing that's going to happen this year, it's actually already starting to happen, is the Fed claim they're going to raise rates in December four times this year. And obviously, as the stock market declines, they're not going to do that. And that should be a positive for gold. And actually, Bitcoin, funny enough, is, is going up too. Uh, so I think the dollar is, is going to top out, uh, and, and that'll benefit metals and stuff like Bitcoin. So I do think there are things that'll, that will go up. The thing, though, about down the road, will, will this get worse or not, um, is this time what I think is different is the Fed really can't do anything because interest rates are <laughs> – they 
all they could do is lower interest rates one time back to zero, and the bond buying stuff, if they do it again, it won't force these companies to borrow more money again because it's just a different environment. They can do that when everything's going up, but when stock market's declining, they're not going to, it's just, it's just that was unsustainable. So I don't really see anything the Fed can do to stop it. Um, and that's why it could go on for a long time without these giant rallies like you would see happen in the last two bear markets. Now, the problem down the road would be, um, possibly the government debt thing, but you know, that's stuff that everyone's been talking about forever. So who knows? <laughs> yeah. I don't know, man. Um, but, but putting coal, that's, that's the simplest answer. You know, not put everything you own in it, but 10, 20% and, yeah, there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, everybody, I really urge you, if you have any savings and you want to try to protect it and invest smart, check out WallStreetWindow.com, the great Mike Swanson, and read his book, The War State, too. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Yeah, great time with you. Hey, all Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com You hate government? One of them libertarian types? Or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers? Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. Explosions are fun! And hey, the closer the explosion is to your house, the more fun it is! Did you ever notice that? Sometimes you have the TV on and you're working around the house. Some guy comes on television and says, 6,000 people were killed in an explosion today. You say, where, where? He says, in Pakistan. You say, oh, f- Pakistan. Too far away to be any fun! But if he says it happened in your hometown, you'll say, whoa, hot shit! Come on, Dave, let's go look at the bodies! Let's go look at the bodies! All right, so the great George Carlin from Jammin' in New York there. And I think a pretty good introduction to our next guest. It's Rick Shankman. He's the editor and founder of the History News Network. Imagine that. That's incredible. I've written for the History News Network before, me and David Beto. Uh, he's the author most recently of Political Animals, How Our Stone Age Brain Gets in the Way of Smart Politics. All right. Well, welcome to the show. How are you doing, Rick? I am uh, doing fine and glad to be here. Uh, good, good. Very happy to have you here. Very interesting article that you've written for Tom Dispatch here, Ted Cruz's Stone Age Brain and Yours. Uh, we like to think that we're all a lot different from Ted Cruz uh, than Ted Cruz, but uh, hmm, maybe we're not so much. Uh, and this is in reference to his um, recent sloganeering about carpet bombing the Islamic State off the face of the earth. Is that right? Exactly. He went uh, and he talked about how um, he was going to uh, turn the uh, the sand uh, just so uh, so red hot. And um, he was going to uh, wipe out uh, all these ISIS forces and he was going to do it through carpet bombing. Now, 
Here's the thing about carpet bombing. Carpet bombing basically means, by definition, indiscriminate bombing. He claimed when he was called on the carpet about this remark that, oh, no, he wasn't uh, going to be doing indiscriminate bombing. His carpet bombing was going to be uh, focused just on the ISIS fighters. So this was a great example of Ted Cruz not knowing what he was talking about when he opened his mouth. But here's the thing. Within days, his poll numbers didn't decline. They went up. That's it. Well, and so, I mean, then again, it's only a certain segment of people who are, you know, voting in his primary anyway, which is still a good, what, third of the population, if not half. But, yeah, uh, pretty bad news. So now, um, I guess the argument goes, yeah, but exceptional. So all other arguments null and void. Right. What a great phrase. Well, here's what here's what I'm arguing in uh, in my book, Political Animals, is that um, when we go on instinct, we wind up going wrong because our brain basically evolved during the period of the Stone Ages, a two and a half million year period, a long time. And it was designed to meet the problems of hunter gatherers during the Stone Age, not the problems of people in the 21st century. When politicians, though, want to try to really connect with voters, they try to activate our instincts from that Stone Age period. And that's what Ted Cruz was doing with his carpet bombing remark. So what he was uh, appealing, the reason why he got such a good response was he was activating this ancient uh, instinct that's in our brain, in all our brains, which is um, we're going to go out there and we're going to get the bad guys who are out to get us. And we're going to take swift, decisive action. It's going to be overwhelming and we're going to have victory. We, as human beings, love that kind of talk instinctively. Now, why doesn't he appeal to all Americans then with that kind of talk? Well, because we have higher order cognitive thinking and cultural assumptions and partisan brains. And so we're not all just acting on our basic human biological instincts. But when a politician tries to activate those instincts, he usually can really strongly connect with people. And that's what Donald Trump has shown. And that is uh, certainly what Ted Cruz showed uh, in this remark. Mm -hmm. So it sounds kind of like what you're saying is American exceptionalism isn't exceptional at all. Every tribe has that same exceptionalism. We're us and they're them. And so whatever, maybe it'd be wrong for one of us to kill one of them. But if we kill all of them, that's OK. That's well, what every tribe believes, basically. Right. Well, as historians, you you know, the the complicated history of American exceptionalism. So this is a uh, concept that emerged out of the, the 19th century uh, when we went on a campaign to move west. Called at that time, it was basically called Manifest Destiny. And this was our God-given right to extend across the country because we were going to use land and the Indians weren't using it so we could shove them aside because God said, if you don't use it, you lose it. Well, we have a certain brand of American exceptionalism, but all peoples all around the world always think that they're the best for something. Uh, the difference between America and the rest of the people in the rest of the world is we're now the number one superpower. So when we get this idea in our head and we start throwing around our power, it has consequences. 
Yeah. Well, severe ones. And well, there's a thing here when you talk about the caveman brain and whatever, and it is the 21st century one at the same time is just how, you know, self-justifying all this is. You know, you run up against a little bit of dissonance and then next step is rationalization. So the one I hear most of all is, come on, they wouldn't do all this stuff if they didn't really know that they had to do it. And we're talking about dropping cluster bombs on people. And you're telling me that our government is so evil and corrupt that they just drop cluster bombs on people for no reason. And so it must be... and if if Ted Cruz says that the Islamic State is such a threat that anything is justified, no holds barred in order to protect ourselves from them, then they must really be dangerous and he must know it or else what are you saying? He's some kind of psychopath. So it, you know, the argument justifies itself. Reality kind of has nothing to do with it. Well, it's quite clear that ISIS is a threat to civilized man. They're methods uh, have been uh, proven to be just appalling. I mean, slicing people's heads off, I don't think in the 21st century is something that any of us uh, uh, sits back and uh, looks at with uh, with pleasure. Um, but when you bomb, there are inevitably uh, casualties. And while the U.S. military, when it bombs, tries uh, to target our weapons on people who are the so-called bad guys, although I always hate that term because it's it's just too neat and simple and life is complicated. But uh, when uh, you send a, a missile and, uh, from a drone um, um, and you hit a building, um, you may get the bad guys in that building. You also may kill a family who's walking by that building or a child who's playing near that building, playing soccer or something. So... Uh, there's always terrible um, uh, unintended consequences. And that's uh, a real problem for us because when we are talking about bombing other places, just as in that wonderful George Carlin clip, which I'd never heard before, if it's, if it's happening somewhere else, we don't really absorb it that these are human beings who are getting in our way. Uh, or who are casualties. The human brain is designed to work with communities of about 100 to 150 people because those were the size of the communities in which the human brain developed during the Stone Age. For two and a half million years, our communities were no bigger than 150 people. So all of our instincts are geared to thinking about communities of that small size. We literally cannot think in any real way, when we're talking about millions of people, we have to project, we have to kind of imagine it, but it doesn't come naturally to us. So when we talk about bombing some place over in the Middle East, and that involves people who don't look like us, they don't talk like us, we can't even find where they live on the map, we turn them into abstractions. So it's very easy then for politicians like Ted Cruz to say, we're just going to bomb these people over here. Mm-hmm. And some other people get in the way and they happen to die. Well, okay, they're just kind of abstract casualties. Right. And that's what I'm trying to draw attention to uh, in uh, this piece for uh, Tom Dispatch and also in my book, Political Animals. All right, now hold it right there. We'll be right back, everybody, with more from Rick Shankman. 
editor and founder of History News Network, HNN, and uh, author of Political Animals. This one is at Tom Dispatch and at Antiwar.com, how we learn to stop worrying about people and love the bombing. Hey, all Scott here. If you like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it tastes good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrensCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrensCoffee.com. Use promo code SCOTT and you get free shipping. DarrensCoffee.com. Hey, y'all, guess what? You can now order transcripts of any interview I've done for the incredibly reasonable price of two and a half bucks each. Listen, finding a good transcriptionist is near impossible, but I've got one now. Just go to scotthorton.org slash transcripts, enter the name and date of the interview you want written up, click the PayPal button, and I'll have it in your email in 72 hours max. You don't need a PayPal account to do this. Man, I'm really going to have to learn how to talk more good. That's scotthorton.org slash transcripts. All right, y'all, welcome back to the show. Scott Horton Show here, talking with Rick Shankman about this great piece at TomDispatch.com, also running at Antiwar.com under Tom Englehart's name, of course. How we learn to stop worrying about people and love the bombing. Ted Cruz's Stone Age brain and yours. And if I'm reading you right here, Rick, it's it's your idea that the biology that... Uh, you know where human beings come from, and and our uh, the just the way that we're wired, our affinity for very small local groups, and our inability to really identify with others outside of those small groups. That it sounds like from reading your article. If I'm I'm oversimplifying, but I'm trying to read you right here. You you sort of sound like you're saying, you know, having a philosophy or a good argument doesn't really matter. The, the only way you can really counteract this kind of way of looking at things that, for example, it's perfectly fine for your government to kill whoever they want as long as it's in a foreign country somewhere far from here, that kind of thing, would be a narrative, a story. And you, you mentioned the napalm girl, for the famous Vietnam War photo, where get someone to identify with this one person and then if you can use that as a symbol of the whole struggle, something. But it's all about feelings, and it's all about, you know, maybe a little social psychology, whether your uncle agrees with you or thinks you're a dumbass on this issue or that issue uh, when it comes to these things. But it almost has nothing to do with real arguments or, or you know, whether people believe in what I thought was Americanism, which was that we all believe, if we all agree on anything, it's that everybody is born free. Right. You can disagree about everything else other than that. But that's right there in the Declaration of Independence, the thing that we all sign on to. Right. Well, what I'm trying to do in political animals is use science to illuminate how we actually respond to politicians and to political issues. And it's a somewhat distressing a story that I tell in the book, because it turns out that while we all like to think that we are rational and that we're responding to important, intelligent arguments, most of the time we go on instinct. And in politics, when we go on instincts, we almost always go wrong. And one of the uh, studies that I cite in the book is to talk about how in our medial prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain where um, empathy is registered. 
if you put people under a an MRI machine and you have them look, for instance, at pictures of uh, homeless people, they don't register much empathy in the medial prefrontal cortex when they are looking at pictures of uh, people who appear to be homeless. And why is that? Because the brain is designed to take notice primarily of people who have high status. And if you have low status, that means you're probably not a threat to me and you're not probably going to be useful to me, so I'm not going to pay much attention to you. When you start to really think about the implications of that, it's mind-boggling because what it means is if you go on instinct and you expect that your natural human empathy, which we feel all the time unless you happen to be a psychopath and you don't have any feelings at all for other people, uh, that you can't really rely on that. You can't trust that in politics because in politics, most of the time, we're not talking about people who are within our intimate circle people we can touch, feel, see, and talk to. Instead, we're talking about people who are remote from us, who may be living 500 miles away from us or 5,000 miles away from us. And if the human brain doesn't show empathy for those people, and yet we have the power to blow them off the face of the earth, you can see that there is a problem. And that's one of the big problems that we have. I focus on four problems that we face as human beings because of the way our design is, our brain is designed, and it's not designed for 21st century man. And the lack of empathy for people who clearly cry out for it is one of the big problems. It's problem number four. I've got three others that I focus on. Mm-hmm. Well, and we can talk about those in a sec, but let me ask you this, though. I mean, I, I understand that you're right. I'm not disagreeing with you. But at the same time, it sounds like you're describing teenagers. You know, it sounds like you're <laughs> describing me when I was a teenager. When I was 14, 15, in ninth grade, that was when Bush Sr. bombed the hell out of Iraq. And I didn't even like Bush Sr. or the Republicans or whatever. But, hey, neat airplanes bombing anything, setting off big explosions. That's good enough for me. And yeah, men, women, and children from Iraq that I barely ever even heard of, except in the context of the Iran-Iraq war and whatever, as a kid, uh, couldn't care less. As long as I get to see explosions, that's great. But of course, I was 14, Rick. And so at some point then I turned, actually, I think I turned 15 and I was exposed to the argument that, hey, maybe it's wrong to mass murder people, even if you're a government. And I thought, Wow, brilliant. You know what I mean? I was still a kid before, you know, when I got over this kind of thinking. And it wasn't because I was already, you know, an ideological individualist anarchist, although maybe I was. But you know what I mean? This sounds like you're just talking about stupid kids. But we're all grown adults in a constitutional republic here and all that. What about that? Well, thank goodness that we don't operate as uh, teenage brains do, because they are uh, uh, unformed, mature. Uh, the brain is still developing to, until we reach about age 25. So it's continuing to grow and, and change until it finally settles down around age 25. But all of us as adults are constantly asked to make a thousand decisions in the course of a day. And most of the time, we have to go on instinct. We can't sit there and study all the, the decisions that we have to make because you, you'd be immobilized. So what the brain does is it doesn't relitigate 
issues. So once it settles on a certain policy, it decides if you're a right wing Republican, what Ted Cruz and Donald Trump say is golden, then whatever they say, you're going to tend to think, yes, it's golden. And you're not going to relitigate that with yourself because that's too time consuming. You've got a million other things to do. You've got to make lunch. You've got to prepare for dinner. You've got to do your job, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the downsides to the way the human brain operates. So it's not that we're stuck with a teenager brain. We don't have a teenager brain after we're about age 25. But we do have a brain that doesn't want to really be thoughtful and reflective. Daniel Kahneman, who's a uh, psychologist um, who won the Nobel Prize in economics, oddly enough, uh, talks about our brain being lazy. It's primarily lazy. And it tries to do as little as possible. And the reason for that is that it takes up energy. If you start really thinking hard about something, you're literally burning more energy. And the brain already burns a lot of energy. It basically burns about 20% of your body's energy, and yet it's only three pounds. So if you're 175 pounds, your, your little brain of three pounds is burning 20% of the body's energy. And it really wants to protect itself from having to use more energy. So it doesn't really want to think about anything else that it doesn't have to think about. So that creates this this basic problem of you decide a certain person. It could be Ted Cruz. It could be Hillary Clinton. It could be Barack Obama. And when they make a case for bombing this group or that group, you don't immediately start thinking through the consequences of bombing you just think that's my guy he or she wants me to back her policy and by gosh i've already decided i like her and she's my person or he's my person they're they're my candidate and you're going to go along with what they say that's a real problem and that's not a teenage brain problem that's a human being problem yeah. I think maybe I'm the case of arrested development here, and I'm just stuck at 15. I happen to be really good on war because I just won't budge from my childish view. But anyway, uh, listen, it's really great, uh, interesting work that you've done here, and I really appreciate you uh, writing for Tom Dispatch where I can get at it too. Uh, so uh, thanks very much for coming on the show, Rick. All right. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate it. All right, child. That is Rick Shankman. And the book is Political Animals, How Our Stone Age Brain Gets in the Way of Smart Politics. He's the editor and the founder of the History News Network. And uh, you can find this article at TomDispatch.com and at Antiwar.com under Tom Engelhart's name there. How We Learn to Stop Worrying About People and Love the Bombing. And we'll be right back with Trevor Tim in just a second. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. 
Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. That's an interesting article. I didn't really do the best job conducting that interview, but I do hope you'll go and read that guy's great piece. It's at antiwar.com today. How we learn to stop worrying about people and love the bombing. Uh, good stuff. Okay, uh, next up is our friend Trevor Tim, the great Trevor Tim. Uh, writer for The Guardian and, of course, uh, from the Freedom of the Press Foundation, where he sits on the board of directors with Greenwald and Snowden and Ellsberg and uh, other greats like that. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing, Trevor? Good. Thanks for having me back. Good, good. Very happy to uh, have you back and happy to read what you write, as always, I think, without exception. Um, and I really like this one because... Uh, well, I really like this show. I'm glad you had some good comment on it here. Making a Murderer, this 10-part miniseries uh, put out by Netflix. It was made over 10 years about the seeming double railroading of this guy, Stephen Avery, first for rape and uh, secondly for a murder. And there has been some controversy over just how much of the prosecution side of the story was told uh, in the in the documentary, so we could talk about that. But this article is mostly beside the point there, um, because whether this guy did it or not, I think anybody could agree he was actually railroaded anyway. Um, <laughs> you know, either way. And then your real point is, um, you know, much larger about the way the American justice system really operates. And I think everyone kind of feels this way. Maybe I didn't really put my finger on it until I heard someone else say it exactly out loud or whatever. But it's the difference between watching a TV show about cops and courts and watching cops and courts on TV. And you realize immediately, like, or if you're willing to stop and really think about it for a minute, there's such a vast gulf. And whenever it's the court TV style thing, it all seems so impersonal, right? It all seems like whoever's actually on the line there isn't even really being considered. He's not being given his due. Uh, he, she, whoever. You know what I mean? That's the yeah. reality of the thing that I think people are feeling. That's why this documentary really strikes everybody's chord so much. You can't help but think as you're watching this that these cops, these prosecutors, and not just these, but all of them. They do this to people all the time. This is the real reality of the American court system, as opposed to da -dun, law and order, et cetera. So what a crappy way to ask a question, Trevor. But anyway, um, I'm just trying to set you up to talk about. So what is the real reality of the daily life of, of you know, people accused of felonies in state courts in America? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with what you just said, and I would encourage everyone, if they have a Netflix account, to go out and watch this documentary, Making a Murderer, because as you said, it really uh, paints an amazingly stark picture about uh, how the Justice Department uh, actually 
uh, in many cases does not work for justice at all, but actually just works uh, for uh, trying to prosecute people and put them in jail regardless of the truth. I mean, it's, you know, it follows the story of Steve Avery, who was already wrongly accused of rape and spent 18 years in jail, uh, and then ends up, once he gets out and makes headlines, uh, he is then uh, charged with murder uh, in a separate crime. And as it develops, you know, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but as it develops over the course of 10 episodes, you see that there are a lot of shady things going on, including potentially the planting of evidence by police uh, and the uh, forced confession of a young, slow 16-year-old boy uh, who may have had nothing to do with uh, anything involving this crime but was uh, kind of bullied into uh, confessing. Um, and, you know, as you watch this, this show, you know, everybody who has watched it has, has talked about how shocked and horrified they are and how, you know, they're basically screaming at the TV saying, oh, my God, like, how could this be going on? But, uh, you know, the, really the only difference between this show besides a, a couple of kind of even more outrageous things that happen uh, is the fact that there are cameras the whole time that we get to see it. Um, it, you know, forced confessions, for example, uh, you know, pressuring, uh, young mentally disabled people without a lawyer into, uh, admitting to crimes they do not commit is an epidemic in this country. And, uh, in my Guardian article, I explained that, you know, there's been uh, a bunch of studies uh, that have been, uh, written about this phenomenon. And, uh, you know, when you finally see it on tape and making a murder, it's, it's kind of shocking and, and just makes you squirm. But, um, when you realize it's been going on for a long time and, and much more common than you think, uh, it, it really disturbs you to the core. Yeah. One thing that I really can't credit my community college education with, not that I have so much as associate's degree or anything, but is uh, in psych class where they talked about false confessions and how easily they're obtained. And that includes people walking right on down to the station house and saying, I did it when they had nothing to do with it at all. They're just some kook. But this happens all the time. And the most common cause of it, of course, is to dumb this down, maybe lowercase t torture works. And in this case... Just a couple of big, fat, bad breath having cops under a hot light in a small closet. And they're saying, come on, you did it. We know you did it. We know you did it. Is enough to shorten one's time preference to, I will say whatever you want me to say to let me out of this room now. And whatever consequences happen after that aren't even considered at that point. They just give up and they are, they're just basically torture works. I'll say what you want me to say. Saddam taught me how to make chemical weapons. We'll confess any dumbass in the custody of a couple of cops. And the only way that they they wouldn't would be if they really understand that the trial comes later, the penitentiary comes later. This is just jail. I can get through this and I can maintain silence until I get a chance to deal with my lawyer or whatever. But unless you're really educated enough to understand the way that process works, you have a couple of bully cops trying to make you say something. You'll say it. And it just happens all day, every day. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think some, a lot of times when we hear the word torture, we think of somebody, uh, you know, taking a hammer to somebody's hand or, uh, waterboarding them or, or, you know, physical, uh, confrontation. Um, but often these, these forced confessions are gotten 
just by talking with somebody for uh, hours and hours on end. Even, you know, it, to, to be honest, when you watch it in Making a Murderer, it, it, in at least a couple of the interrogations, the police aren't even really being mean to this person. They are uh, just trying to direct them in the way that they want him to speak. And when you do it over and over and over again for hours and hours, uh, and when you're talking to a boy who has the IQ of 70, uh, who doesn't have a lawyer present, uh, who, uh, it, who indicates that he just wants to get back to class, and when you tell him this, this type of person that uh, as long as you tell us what we want to hear, then everything will be okay and you can leave, uh, it, it turns out that, that people like this will often uh, admit to things that they had nothing to do with, and it ends up uh, leaving them behind bars for the rest of their life for a crime they didn't commit. Yep. And now, so, and talk too about the, the plea pressure, because I think a big part of this is the stacking of charges. And I wonder, was it not always this way in 1840-something? You get accused of something, the prosecutor brings you in there and charges you with 75 things, so you better plead guilty to 20 of them or else you're going to do life. Oh, I, you know, uh, the idea of pleading guilty uh, or plea bargains uh, before trial is a huge problem in this country. Uh, you know, a lot of defendants who are completely innocent of crimes or who think they're completely innocent of crimes are advised by their lawyers to uh, come up with a plea deal because if they go to trial, they do spend the rest of their lives in jail. And, you know, I don't know if it was a problem back in the 1800s, but we do know that our federal and state uh, laws have continually expanded over the past 100 years and especially in the last 30 years where there are just so many crimes in the books that if uh, prosecutors say we're going to charge you with 15 crimes, you better admit to something or we're going to go to trial, uh, then you're kind of backed into a corner. And we see that happen in this case. You know, the, the it, this is the craziest stat that I, I, I saw when I was doing this piece was that there was 125 exonerations last year where, where people were let out of jail for crimes they didn't commit. 47 of them uh, involved defendants who pleaded guilty. So they basically told the court that they did it even though they didn't. That was 37% of the cases, which is just outrageous. And uh, we, we know that this happens all the time because the system is set up the way, this way to, to kind of force them, uh, into making a plea deal, even if they want to claim they're innocent. Oh, and damn it, I always do that. <laughs> We're in the break anyway. Hold it right there. We'll be right back with more Trevor Tim after this. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. If this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Roberts & Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Roberts & Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there, scotthorton.liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. All right, y'all. Welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's the Scott Horton Show. Talking with Trevor Tim. I'm going to ask you about your brand new one here, the Silicon Valley thing, in a minute, Trevor. But um, 
a little bit more about this mini series, uh, whatever it is, documentary series there on Netflix, Making a Murderer. Um, and, well, the, the revelations. Uh, a big part of it, I think, and this has been a problem in a lot of high profile cases that I'm aware of, is the system of compromise that the jurors come up with for deciding what they'll do. So if you have a split decision, there's always a couple of cop worshipers on every jury who, hey, if the government says so, it's true, simple as that to them. And everybody else says, well, okay, I'll tell you what, we'll convict them on this and this, but not on that if you'll go ahead and agree to stop pushing for that one, whatever. And that's apparently what happened in this case as well. Uh, that was the story of the Branch Davidians. Uh, who were all acquitted of murder, but then convicted of using a firearm in the commission of a felony, even though they'd just been acquitted of the felony. So the judge says, nah, I'm going to go ahead and sentence you guys as though you'd been convicted of the felony, because that's what the jury meant anyway, even though really they didn't. It was 10 to 2 for acquittal. But that was the compromise they'd come to. Anyway, there are a million like that. And is there anything that can be done to prevent that? How do you get... How does a juror decide I'll compromise someone I want to acquit? I'll go ahead and give him some years in prison just to get this guy across the table off my back. You know, unfortunately, uh, once the jury is in the deliberation room, uh, it's really a black box as far as, um, uh, you know, having the conviction set aside um, or getting a new trial based on what they talk about in that room. You know, there are, there are strict rules as far as, um, outside influence on juries. Um, but as far as uh, jurors influencing other jurors, unfortunately, uh, at least the, uh, at least rulings in past cases have shown that, that this is not a way that defendants can get a new trial, even if, you know, on his face, it seems inherently unfair that, for example, in this case, that there was a friend of one of the, um, one of the sheriff sheriff's office deputies on the jury itself uh and that you know juries are people are easily influenced by one or two strong personalities within a room and they can essentially bully people who want to uh rule uh or say that they believe the client is not guilty uh into saying they're guilty by doing these sort of horse trading maneuvers or um, implicit threats or just the fact that they are stuck together in the room for weeks at a time and they really want to go home. You know, they kind of can think about their own lives and the fact that they've been disrupted by the trial, but oftentimes it gets lost that the fact that the defendant sitting on the other side of the table, uh, you know, potentially has uh, his life at stake mm -hmm. when juries make decisions like this. All right, now, on Matlock, when he busts the guy who really did it on the stand under cross-examination, the prosecutor says, oh, hell. All right, Your Honor, I move to dismiss the charges, and that's the end of that, and they don't really mind because, hey, it's not like they meant any harm. They're just trying to do their best and made a mistake and accidentally were prosecuting the wrong guy. Same as Perry Mason. we all seen it a million times. And the judge says, sure thing, and that's the end of that. But I guess in the real world, there's a system, uh, a must be a real powerful system of disincentives for prosecutors to ever admit that maybe they got it wrong and to back off and let somebody go. Well, the prosecutors think it's their job, despite the fact that the Supreme Court has actually said unequivocally that it is not their job to uh, have people prosecuted. It, their job is uh, to find truth and justice. Yet prosecutors think that if they were ever to admit that, uh, you know, something went wrong in a trial that they conducted and that 
somebody is actually innocent who they had proved guilty, um, they fight tooth and nail to make sure, in a lot of cases, that that person does not get out of jail. We, you know, when you watch Making a Murderer, and, and we're talking about the first case here where the main character, Stephen Avery, was uh, convicted of rape, uh, we see that the prosecutor um, it, it doesn't, it, or at least we're, it's indicated that he doesn't even care when it's found out that uh, Stephen Avery was in fact innocent and that he is just looking to, uh, you know, cover his own back um, when the information is finally revealed. And, you know, he had spent the, the 10 years prior making sure that every challenge to the case and the appeals court or any request for a new trial or new evidence was suppressed uh, just so that he could keep that conviction. Mm-hmm. All right, now, in this documentary, this is a really bad case because I think it's pretty apparent that they planted the key and they hated this guy's guts, and this is a real frame-up job. But I want to kind of go to a more general sort of, uh, you know, the more traditional frame-up job is the cops believe what they believe. They target who they feel like targeting. They prove that, and they just don't allow much room for doubt in the way they investigate. Uh, all their logic is inductive rather than deductive, and so they're not really looking for the truth they they decide what the truth is they're they're basically cops are truthers right i mean they're all a bunch of meatheads anyway it's not like we're talking about a bunch of phd students here or whatever they figure out who they think did it and then they make that case and and the jury and the court presume the accused guilty every time because why would the cops be jerking our chain and bringing in some innocent guy? Obviously, they know what they're doing, or this guy wouldn't be in the dock in the first place. And then the burden's on you to prove that they did it wrong. That's the way it seems like works, you know, on the regular in-and-out, day-to-day sort of basis here, even when it's not an attentional-type frame-up. Uh, absolutely. I mean, cops have their own biases, uh, just like everybody does. And when they uh, get on one track, oftentimes that leads to them putting on blinders and uh, missing other key pieces of evidence that may lead to the real perpetrator. Um, but when we talk about cops actually planting evidence, which we don't really have numbers on how often that happens, partially because, um, you know, this is hard to study and, and partially because it's, you know, frankly, um, easy for them to get away with it if they do, because they are the ones in charge of uh, handling the evidence. Um, but we do know when, when uh, cops are found uh, to have planted evidence that it could have drastic effects across the, the criminal justice system, even when it's only a small number of police officers who are actually corrupt. Um, so, for example, there was research done in 2012 uh, that uh, only looked at 13 um, police corruption scandals where uh, there was evidence of planting drugs or guns on innocent defendants. And in those 13 scandals, there was over 1,100 cases where convictions had to be overturned. Meaning that, you know, if there is a, a cop that is doing this, it's, it's likely that they are doing it all the time and could affect vast numbers of people. Um, so that even if there are only a few bad apples, there are, are, are an amazing am- an amount of people who get caught up in it. Mm-hmm. Well, I love telling this story, and sorry because I told it a million times, maybe to you already, Trevor, but um, I used to be a cab driver, and I one time was driving around an assistant district attorney from Harris County, that's Houston, who was in Austin for some big you know, meeting of government people or whatever, and she told me that the slogan around the office, not her, of course, but everybody else, their you know, cliche is that if they really didn't do it, they'll get out on appeal. 
meaning whoever the cops bring them, they nail to the wall. And they'll do nothing to, you know, they'll, uh, do, you know, never stop, rest uh, or whatever in order to guarantee to convict anyone the cops bring them. Otherwise, geez, that's like a vote of no confidence in the cops and they don't want to do that or anything. And so and then if they really didn't do it, then when the burden of proof is on them from a prison cell uh, where God knows what is happening to them, uh, they'll be able to prove it somehow uh, and get out and no harm, no foul. And that's just the way that they look at it. And then here's the, the real kicker, right, is there's no reason for them to not look at it that way because zero percent of them ever go to prison for putting innocent people in prison. Never, ever, ever. And I bet if it happened two or three times, the rest of these cowards would fall right in line and, and start acting uh, you know, appropriate on these things, or at least much more appropriately. But there's no accountability for this kind of thing ever, Actually, right? Yeah, you know what? I think that is the crux of the problem uh, when we talk about the systematic issues and the reason that it can continually happen over and over again. There's always going to be people that make mistakes, the Justice Department or the Justice System is never going to be perfect, and there are always going to be a few people, even if we do have a, a true and just system, uh, that uh, try to expose people in jail. But the reason that it I'm happens, sorry, I'm sorry, cut out there for just a second. That try to. Uh, I'm, the reason that it happens over and over again uh, is because uh, the system protects itself. So that yeah, pro both prosecutors and police are given uh, immunity in all sorts of situations, even when it's clear that there has been withholding of evidence, uh, that there has been clear wrongdoing. You know, in the Stephen Avery case and making a murderer, you see this in action where the, the state is basically investigating themselves and exonerating themselves. There's no independent uh, investigators uh, or uh, people who can make decisions that uh, are free of bias. And because no one ever gets punished and because the system is set up to perpetuate itself rather than uh, police itself, um, we have these situations happen over and over again. And slowly but surely it gets ingrained in the system uh, so that it becomes harder and harder as time goes along. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the thing of it. All the precedents set where you might think if this was Matlock or Perry Mason where he'd say, hey, objection, Your Honor, because this isn't fair for that reason. But in the real world, overruled. You know, that argument was already settled in the case of this versus that. The prosecutor gets to get away with it. Proceed. And and just because it's it's been that long, right? Like we'd have to just somehow erase decades worth of of precedents favoring the cops i read and this is more or less the same thing i'm sorry i'm keeping you over just one minute here but i'll get your comment here and let you go but uh there's a lawyer i'm sure you know him or follow him on twitter at least uh, scott greenfield i believe it is who uh, keeps this great blog and he wrote a thing called the basically reasonable murder of tamir rice where he explains that the only thing Preventing a cop from just killing whoever is the reasonable clause of the Fourth Amendment. They may not seize your life right out of you unless it's reasonable. That's the that's the very best you got. And then from there, there are whatever, you know, 10 or 15 precedents he cites that completely twist everything in favor of a cop. So any any time a, a cop commits a crime, the court may only examine that crime from the point of view of the cop who committed it. And all these just completely ridiculous things that would never apply to regular people. And it seems like 
There's just no one doing that, other than going back in time and making Ron Paul the president in 2008 or something. What politicians would ever say, here's the kind of wholesale reform we need. Let's undo the worst 500 things about our criminal justice system, right? I mean, this is a century-long project to undo the disaster going on here. And nobody, there's hardly any political will at all other than... You know, progressive writers like yourself, for the most part, urging reforms as best you can, but up against what? Up against a mountain of the national government and its laws and rules and regulations. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the big problems is actually the Supreme Court over the past 40 years, in decision after decision, they have kind of closed off avenues for bringing civil lawsuits against police officers and against prosecutors who uh, engage in this type of abuse uh, by giving them essential immunity for all of the most egregious and outrageous crimes. And uh, because the, they are kind of cut off from this type of accountability, it then it kind of perpetuates itself. And we see it more and more often where uh, there is a police shooting of an unarmed person or that there is hiding of evidence, and that it, despite the fact that people die or people go to jail for years and they're, uh, it, they're innocent, uh, there is no accountability whatsoever, and the, the prosecutors and police who are responsible get to keep going on doing their job and in some cases are promoted instead of being fired and prosecuted for what are clear uh, abuses of their office. Yep. All right, that's the great Trevor Tim. Thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Hey, always a pleasure. All right, y'all, uh, you can find him at The Guardian and find him at the Freedom of the Press Foundation as well. And I'm sorry we didn't get to talk to him about this latest one, but I'll tell you, it's called Asking Silicon Valley to Disrupt Terrorists is Tech Talk for Surveillance. It's a very important piece. We'll be running it on antiwar.com tomorrow. Before that, Making a Murderer depicts miscarriages of justice that are not at all rare. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Y'all see you tomorrow.